Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. My name is Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with uh, an old friend and a fantastic songwriter, uh, Martin Olson. Um, Hello now, there. Now, Martin, you've you've uh, you've told me you you started writing songs when you were 12 years old. You uh, really are really bad songs, <laughs> and you're a successful songwriter now. You've written a lot for. I mean, you've got several Emmy nominations for your songwriting. You've yeah. uh, written pop hits. You've uh, written for television and, and animated television. Give me a little bit of like a chronology of how you came to be. Well, just to backtrack, the pop hits and quotes were for Disney, uh, the Walt Disney Company. So they were within the umbrella of the Walt Disney pop hits. <laughs> but you wrote so, for a lot of uh, people who have charted with, you know, oh, yeah. big songs and stuff. I mean, give us a little bit of a... Well, the most recent was Crazy Weird Al, who's the most brilliant guy ever, so I was lucky enough to write a song for him. He's he's uh, sung a couple songs that I wrote, but uh, mainly it was with my songwriting partners, Dan and Swampy, Dan Pavanmar and Swampy Marsh, at Disney. We're like the... The house band. Yeah, and Rob Hughes. The four of us were kind of like the go-to guys for Disney songwriting. Oh, cool. But, I mean, so take us back to, okay, Massachusetts. Uh, you're 12 years old, and you pick up what instrument first? The piano. I was playing piano since I was very young, but I always had a knack for just melodies and stuff like that, as all songwriters do when they're young. But <clears throat> very bad with lyrics. Uh, really good with tunes, and it develops, um, uh, uh, it evolves in a definite way, much like any living thing, it evolves, melody evolves because you hear all different things from other songwriters. I used to, as a kid, go through the Richard Rogers songbook mm -hmm. on the piano, and I can't sight read, but I could, any idiot can sight read the right hand. I remember Louis Armstrong saying it was such so great to read. It was so liberating to hear this interview with Louis, and he said any idiot can read music because it's just the, it's on a trumpet. It's just the right hand, so you can always know when it goes up and down. Anybody can do that if you practice. Uh, but I can't do left hand and right hand because I'm never did it, never studied it. But on the Richard Roger, for example, the Richard Rogers are or Gershwin songbooks, or the Beatles songbooks, or the Harry Warren songbooks, all these great songwriters. I had these songbooks because my uncle was a vaudeville accordionist hmm. in Swedish vaudeville groups. And so I inherited all these songbooks. And on at the top of the each bar of music would be the chord written it would be C, it would be F minor, it would be B flat, it would be C sharp. And so I could read, write the, I could play the right hand and pick out the tune, and then I would recognize it. I'd say, oh, I know that song, I've heard, I've heard my mother singing that. you go by ear after that. Yeah, it was all playing by ear anyway. But I'm not, I'm not going to challenge you on the Swedish vaudeville piece, because <laughs> I don't know that that actually is a... A thing that has ever existed. <laughs> it was, uh, my uncle taught me accordion since I was a young boy. So my parents got me, my parents were very loving. And I was super lucky. He was, uh, uh, you know, I had super great parents. And they got me an accordion so I could play with my uncle Martin. I was his namesake. Mm -hmm. So um, as a result, I got these songbooks. And the first one was Richard Rogers because the song structure was so odd and strange and I didn't know, I mean, 
I'm used to just blues type, mm-hmm. simple, you know, twelve uh, year old thinking mindset. Where it's just one, four, five. And this is right around the time that, like, the British invasion's happening. You're getting, like, inundated with sort of Beatles and rock and roll for the first time, really. This is what's so interesting, because you just said exactly the thing I was going to say, because I had gone through, for example, the Richard Rogers song where you'd start, say if you're in the key of C, which is really the only... I can only play, like, in C, E-flat, F, and G. That's You know what I mean? Where there's not too many sharps or flats. <clears throat> so... I would usually play in C where there's no sharps or flats and compose melodies on that. And uh, sometimes on the Richard Rogers song, which, which is the first one I did, then there was Gershwin, then it was Harry Warren, then there was um, the Beatles. Um, Richard Rogers sometimes would go from one to seven. So he'd go from C to B flat to F, which is just a common, normal thing that had been done for centuries with classical music, but just in such unusual ways. And Richard Rodger also did such weird uh, changes, like he changed from major to minor, minor in very odd ways. And I learned from that the uh, diminished chords, which had a unique kind of a passing tone quality to them. <clears throat> uh, one of the most famous diminished chord songs is you must remember this. A kiss mm-hmm. is just a kiss. It's all based on the opening diminished chords. Uh, it's really interesting when you're a 12-year-old first finding that. It's like a wonderland. It, it, it's amazing. You don't really know what you're listening to. And so I was able to, by practice and by, would you say earlier, not sight reading. But by ear. By ear. Picking things up. To learn little. those tricks. Mm-hmm. Then, to go with what you just said, so remember, it's Harry Warren, who, you know, we're in the money, all these genius songs. Uh, so you think they laid down the blueprint for pop, the early rock, you know, kind of stuff? Well, it was all the blues stuff, for sure. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, and, and, and Rodgers and Hammerstein were so unbelievably good. <clears throat> and um, Gershwin was an unbelievably good songwriter. It was just like a, a, a miracle it was like being going to church. It was I wasn't a religious family or anything. It was like that was my church really going through the songbooks. It was like being in heaven. That's amazing. So so that happens. You I mean we're going to have to take you from twelve onward because we need to graduate <laughs> you out of this. Um, but so like you're a Boston guy. You're from Boston. You're this you're grandson of Swedish immigrants. Yeah. You you inevitably head into town. And you meet up with a bunch of folks, uh, like-minded folks in Boston. We're going to get to, uh, like, songwriting process here. But uh, uh, you had a pretty interesting, pretty cool life in Boston in the late 70s, early 80s. Well, before that, I ended up, uh, I wanted to be a comedy writer Mm -hmm. because I saw the Dick Van Dyke show. And I can't tell you how many, excuse me, other comedy writers I've met that they, of my age, I'm 66 now, excuse me, who watched the Dick Van Dyke show and said, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I mean, it was fucking it. It was like, what? And because I had, I was lucky and had loving parents and a comfy... Encouraging. Encouraging. Yeah, and my father was a house painter and had held three jobs and stuff like that, so we weren't wealthy, but they were so encouraging, that's the key. So I was comfortable in existence and I didn't have neuroses. I mean, I was like really happy. 
So I Which would do... automatically disqualifies you from comedy. <laughs> <laughs> well, get this. Here's an interesting point. I teamed up with a guy in high school named Jeff Root, one of the greatest geniuses I've ever met in terms of, uh, in terms of music and writing. And we both simultaneously, he was two years younger, but we, maybe three years younger, but we had uh, the similar experiences of tracking music uh, because I could hear it and know what the chords were. He could as well. So when you hook up with somebody like that, and it's, it's not a super, you know, complicated genius thing. It just no, but it's a foreign language that you two understand. Yes. So then we got together, and it was instant songwriting. It was instant uh, Lennon McCartney. Type so these were your first songs that you wrote. No, I wrote a lot of songs on my own first. Really, really shitty ones. But collaboratively, these are the songs that sort of uh, made you feel like you could maybe essentially do this. Going forward. We'll get this. I had been... I told you the story about my friend in your town, Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. At that same fucking trip, we pulled in a gas station, and some music was playing. The gas station was, was blaring in the thing, and I made my parents stop. Please, wait, I want to... What is this? It was a day in the life. It was the song. Wow. It had just come out. And 68? 68. And so I, I couldn't believe the what White I was album here. actually came out the day I was born. No way! Yeah, that's kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah. So well, you hear A Day in the Life, which is, which is a life-altering song. It was a life-altering song for me because it was very similar to what it was like as if the Richard Rogers songbook, the George Gershwin... Now, I'd heard plenty of all those songs, but I didn't really hear them. All I heard mainly was them with the melodies, and I, my mother would sing them washing the dishes, and I didn't really, there was no internet, I didn't have access to be able to hear records by those guys, uh, so I, I kind of knew how genius they were and how much they affected me with the, learning those different chords, switching from major minor to diminished chords, the, to, to, to one, two, three, four, and, 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 and way different from one, four, five with blues, it was like a, like magical. So when I heard that song, I didn't know it was the Beatles. I don't know nothing about that. I thought the Beatles sucked. I thought they were some shitty idiot band that Flash all the morons band. like. Yeah. So then I heard that. I said, what? Because I'm, you know, a kid. And, 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 I, and my parents were so sweet. God bless them. They let me listen to the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> Seven minutes at a gas station somewhere in Maryland. Yeah. I was bringing up my friend Jeff Root, who lived two blocks away from me in the country, mm-hmm. little tiny rural road uh, across from a farm in Littleton, Massachusetts. And Jeff Root and I were of the same mind. He was a couple of years younger, but way smarter than me. And uh, I learned so much from him. And we started recording. And I have a really great story about this. Um, Jeff and I started recording. The reason I brought this up because he and I decided to do a comedy record after we did four albums, homemade albums. My lord. So that's how I ended up in the comedy scene. But to backtrack to the beginning of it, this is the amazing story. We did our first record called Idiot's Delight, and it was just jam-packed with music. And it was pretty much inspired by Sgt. Pepper's. It was that kind of a all different grab bags of different things. 
and both of us had gone through different people's songbooks and stuff like that, and so we had a, a really good partnership for for singing and playing. But here's the thing: his father was an electrical engineer, so he built us a four-channel mixer. Wow! And we had two stereo tape recorders. So what we would do is we'd record on the. That means we had four tracks. And just to interrupt for a sec. Does that even does that even exist other places at this point? I mean, I know that he didn't invent it, but like there aren't. I mean, this isn't the thing that most people build in their garage. I mean, this is a pretty innovative uh, thing at that point to to have multi track uh, recording at that point. Here's it's not what, easy. Here's what we found out: we were doing the same thing that the Beatles were doing with George Martin, and in an oddly way, we connected with them. It's so fucking crazy to talk about, but here's what happened. It wasn't that innovative because everybody had stereo tape recorders. And so you could always... So the natural thing, what the Beatles did is what we did. We didn't even know that they did this. We would, we would feed the left track. We, first, we'd record one track, usually the bass and piano, and maybe just a guide track of the, of the, of the vocal. And then we'd uh, <clears throat> feed it through the mixer. Then we'd record the second track on that stereo tape recorder, we'd rewind, it recorded on the other side of the tape, mm-hmm. I mean, on the bottom half of the tape, not even the other side. Then we'd go through the mixer and go th- mix them together, just those two rough tracks, and put it on the first track of the second stereo tape recorder, and so on. And so, so we build. And then we'd bounce them back and forth, and the most we could do would be six before the hiss got too... Overwhelming. We found out that the Beatles did the same thing, but with super expensive equipment. Right. Because here's what happened. This is unbelievable, by the way. That's crazy. It doesn't sound like it's true. We sent our first record. We Sometimes we went to eight tracks. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes we just would put one lead part that we would both Which would is play. the max back then, really. Yeah. And so we would put it on, just put it on the end of it, even though it was too much hiss at one part. And we also had all the songs sort of slide into each other, um, much like Sgt. Pepper's. Yeah. So Jeff, Jeff Root, my music partner, because he was so audacious and didn't know any better, sent, we made uh, acetates of that, of that tape mm-hmm. that we cut together with scissors and with scotch tape. It's the equivalent of, a, of like recording an album demo at that point. And, right. You know. We sent it to Apple Records in 1970, and George Martin, to care of George Martin, and the motherfucker wrote us back, and he said, this is the best home recording I have of original songs I have ever heard. That was how he let That's it amazing. Up. That's how we let it up. And he said, and he went through the different songs talking about them, and then he said, it's a... It's a um, this was the touching part because Jeff and I were such dummies. He said, uh, uh, it's a shame that there's an ocean between us. And we didn't know that he was saying, fly over you fucking idiots to been, meet me and we're doing fucking, we're just wow. doing the White Album. <clears throat> so we, didn't, we were so provincial, we didn't know that that was a, even a possibility. That's amazing. So, <laughs> that is but truly we did amazing. get that kind of... Um, Affirmation. Yeah. So. But, so, I mean, 
That's insane. Do you, yeah. you, did you, you? I hope to God you have the letter, and I'm not going to press you on it. But Jeff has had the letter, but he says he doesn't have it anymore, and he can't find it because they moved twice. Okay. But you know, maybe it's in his paper still. But it's just a shame that that's amazing. He doesn't have. It. That's an amazing story. I've never heard that story before. That yeah. and that is remarkable. So you then moved to Boston. You ultimately moved to LA, but you you do Boston. You're did uh, Jeff. Continue in the After we kind of hit the peak with fucking George Martin. Yeah. <laughs> I quit. I'm no, done. we did three other records, just homemade fucking records. Mm-hmm. We're idiots. We're not even selling them. We're just doing it for ourselves. The Brown album. <laughs> <laughs> then we said, let's do a comedy record because we both love comedy. And so as a result of doing that, I started writing, trying to write sketches and jokes. And we did Super 8 films, comedy films, stuff like that. And then there was a comedy class in Boston that I took. Jeff had nothing to do with that. And that's where I met the two guys. There were no comedy clubs in Boston at the time. It didn't exist. It wasn't a thing. So the three of us at Sean Morey's Comedy Club, who was the first Boston comedian to be on The Tonight Show, Mm -hmm. um, except for Jay Leno. And Sean's class brought us together. Sean Morey really was the part of the Boston comedy scene. And we started the first comedy club in Boston called Comedy Connection. So I played the piano for the club. <coughs> and uh, me and the two other guys that started it really weren't comedians. We were comedy writers. So I did an act where I played comedy songs. And they weren't like parodies. Mm-hmm. They just were weird fucking shit. Crazy songs. Out there. Yeah. But I got it, the most amazing thing. The first time we had a crowd in and we performed, we, you know, it was a comedy club and the place was fairly full and my act killed with the songs and stuff I did a deadpan act and I'm not a performer at all not not at all so I'm kind of Steve Wright's a friend of mine the comedian who does deadpan act I met him through you actually oh you met him yeah so Steve is a dear friend and he's just and also uh, my favorite comic of all time because <laughs> he's the funniest because I think yeah. he's the funniest he's the best writer ever yeah, his jokes are so unique and uh, immediately identifiable. Um, but also, you know, Bob Goldthwait and goddamn... Yeah, it was everybody. I mean, you you and Lenny Clark were roommates. You yeah. had the place where everybody crashed. And, and we'll get through this period quick. I mean, Barry Crimmins... Yeah, Mark. Barry Crimmins was the one of the greatest of the greats because he, he started the second comedy club. The Ding Ho. Which, then I was piano player over there, too. And Barry had... a. A, a, a different philosophy from 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 the other guys. He split every dollar with everybody. He was he split the, all the money with everybody, and he was you know. I'll make a reference that you you may or may not know, but he was the Factory Records of of comedy. He don't know the he reference. was the uh, he was the guy who said artists first. Um, he was democratic. Yeah, artist first, management second. Yeah, that's exactly right. That was the, what record? Factory Records. It was uh, uh, Tony Wilson in England who split fifty fifty with, uh, you know, Joy Division, New Order, Happy Mondays. He no was way. the um, yeah. yeah. So uh, anyway, that that was uh, very similar. Then, if that's the case, it was a new thing because all the other comedy clubs were because were managers driven. were very. <clears throat> um, Predatory people. 
Yeah. And, and I mean, frankly, still are. But um, at this point, you know, you get someone like Barry Crimmins, who was a com- comedian and a right. phenomenal comedian, but also uh, somebody who saw the injustice of the business right. and wanted to rectify it. Exactly. And most, right. most of the, in the same way that, and this is another, a story for another day, but Barry Crimmins wanted to rectify most injustices and was a, a, a became a, a great advocate for uh, the underserved and, and was a tremendous person and, and sadly recently died. But um, a phenomenal all, guy. all of that is so true. It's just amazing. His story is amazing. And it's built out of tragedy. He had a tragic childhood that sort of drove him to become an advocate for the underdog. Mm. <clears throat> but we also, the main thing is me and Barry and all our group of friends, we just would howl, laugh, crying, laughing. I mean, I mean that was the main thing. This, the bond was through la- laughing. Because we just loved each other. It was, it's hard to even explain. Uh, because everyone was trying to material and fucking with each other all the time. Because we already gone through the thing of doing... And I'm not even a comedian. I'm just writing for people. So, But we, we had a local comedy show. And me and Lenny and Barry and... It was a local... Who else was involved in that? Is it Dennis, Steve Wright. Steve Dennis Wright. Leary. Dennis Leary. Mark Maron, no. No, Mark Maron, I never Later. knew. Never, I had never met him. Um, but definitely... Uh, so all the Boston guys. It was... Uh, um, you know, all these... Steve Sweeney. Steve Sweeney. All oh, these, my God. Yeah, these guys Funniest are all legends ever. now. And... Um, it was an extraordinary... The Kevin Meany. But you then come out to Los Angeles to really concentrate on songwriting. No, I came out here to do comedy. I, I drove out... I drove out cross-country three times. Once with Don Gavin, then with Jack Gallagher, <laughs> then with Don Gavin again. And Don Gavin was one of the funniest comedians ever. And he, we, we, we ended up in San Francisco. We went to Chicago. We stopped. He was a gambler, and we stopped all the time because we had no fucking money. <laughs> and Barry Crimmins would wire us two hundred dollars here, hundred fifty here, all the time, just to get us across country. And it turns out, I don't know if Barry organized this or how, if he, it was some psychic weird thing. But we ended up on the on the eve in San Francisco after stopping at all these comedy clubs and all these cr- cr- crazy places in San Francisco on the eve of the 1980 comedy competition, which the prize was 10 grand. And... Uh, sk- uh, a, a, Who's the lineup? Um, or some of the <clears throat> major people that well, came out? Well, Robin Williams, Dana Carvey, Kevin Pollack. Um, I mean, it's a, this is remarkable. I mean, this is a... This is the... Really, the the breeding ground for the, I mean, entertainment for the next twenty five years. Absolutely, same with Boston, San Francisco, and Chicago, and I guess Austin too. I think. But I remember, I <coughs> as a kid, I remember. Pardon <coughs> me. Um, sorry, I, I I remember as a kid seeing, uh, like the young comedian shows on like HBO. This is the early eighties, but this was even pre that. I mean, this is Robin Williams doing stand up. This is. Um, well, I think that all of these guys were on the Young Comedians specials. What happened was Bob Goldthwait, who was probably the most original guy, I mean, nobody was doing what he was doing. He created a character. He was doing, like, one-liners as an angry young man at age 16. He, he and Tom Kenny, the voice of yeah, uh, SpongeBob and, and one of the best rock singers in the world. I've met Tom before, and not, uh, yeah. 
oh my god, Tom Kenny. I mean, it's just so weird that they're so fucking talented. So, Goldthwait started this, the character. I got a phone call in Boston one night just to tell this story about the comedy thing. It's not about songs. Mm-hmm. Um, Don Gavin, the guy I drove cross country, says, dude, get over to uh, the Ding Ho now. I said, I'm in bed. What are you talking about? Goldthwait is on stage in a uh, Cub Scout uniform acting like a mentally retarded boy. I said, what are you talking about? He said, just get over here right away because it was only literally five minutes away by cab. So I get over there and go through the way down the stage with his Cub Scout uniform on and he's screaming and he only has like three lines and he says them over and I was halfway through his act. He said, uh, me, 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 me and my, I can't, I'm not a comedian, I can't do it. But he said, me, me, me and my brother, we saw Bigfoot. Then the crowd would be laughing and he'd say, shut up. And then they, and he'd be upset. And then they would howl laughing at that. And then he'd start over again. He said, me, 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 and he'd start over to try to do this thing again. And he just would keep telling him to shut up. And it was so fucking funny. It, he'd never done anything like this. And his voice was so powerful. And it was fucking crazy. And all the comedians were in back just watching him in, in awe because he was 17. And so, or 18. Started when he was 16. I guess it was two years, but it was 18. But that was the first time when he started. And as a result, he and I became friends. And so out in L.A., he and I touched base. And then I became his writer out there and did his first Cinemax special. And he and I wrote it. And he just was the most funniest guy ever and the nicest person. And, and then I did his first HBO special with him. So that was the beginning of it, because then I produced the specials for, for, for Kevin Meany and Kevin, Kevin Pollock, and uh, did, did a whole series of things with Jeremy Kramer and a Fox series of comedy stand-up stuff, and always incorporated music into it, so I did songwriting to those as well. But so, I mean, this is what we've been sort of building towards. I mean, you... You're a you're a songwriter first and foremost who was you know involved with the comedy world and and but you really I mean I, you know the songs I know from you and the, and the songs that you've written for television and and again I'll, I'll you know I'm sort of reiterate what I've talked about in the intro which is I mean you've written a lot of songs for you know you wrote the song for Phineas and Ferb you've been involved with Adventure Time uh, more recently uh, SpongeBob is that correct. Yeah, Spongebob, I, but I, I just sang on Spongebob. I didn't write songs for it, nor did I write songs for Adventure Time. Okay. My daughter, Olivia, who plays Marceline, the Vampire Queen, she sing, sang all the big songs for Adventure Time. And, and I mean, just... Written a, by Rebecca Sugar, mainly. A little bit of uh, background, uh, if you've ever seen Love Actually, the uh, British film um, that uh, the adorable girl who sings All I Want for Christmas with you, uh, is you at the end of the movie, the the absolute uh, pinnacle of joy. That is uh, Martin Olson's daughter, Olivia. That's Olivia when she was nine, yeah. Jesus. <clears throat> and that was her real voice. Yeah, it was so funny because it, that was all because of my wife Kay. So I met Kay, by the way. She was, I met her at that same thing when Don Gavin and I drove over and we ended up on the eve of the 1980 comedy competition in San Francisco. I didn't finish the story, but Don ended up 
coming in first. We had to stay at the other comedian's house, so I met, we both met everybody. We stayed at different people's houses. That's how I stayed with Kevin Meany, and he and I became best friends for years. Kevin Meany's not a Boston guy? He is. He was a Boston guy, okay, but first he was San Francisco. Oh, wow. I thought he, I always thought he was a Boston guy. And then he came and he took over my room in mm. Boston. That's funny. And uh, May Lee Davis, or Monica Piper, one of the funniest comedians, she was, uh, I think she came in f- fourth. On the, on the 1980 thing, but she had flown my wife, Kay Furtado, up to San Francisco to write for her. And Kay, Kay was an astrologer and was a writer, but mainly an astrologer. And so I met her as kind of a, with enmity between us because she was my competition. Mm-hmm. And so she were was... You, uh, were you not compatible signs? <laughs> I don't know. <clears throat> but um, Your sign is... I was born April 2nd, so it's Aries. Aries, okay. And she is? And she is born April uh, 23rd, uh, October 23rd, which is... Uh, cusp. No. Um, That's Cusp. Pluto. Uh, what, what, what's That's that? Cusp, Scorpio. And Scorpio. Yeah. So, no, this is, this is war. <laughs> so I'm from Boston. I don't know anything about this, and I don't understand it at all for sure. But she actually showed me this shit, and I'm telling you, for a It's Boston basically guy, Catholicism of the stars. <laughs> Well, here's what it is. Learning astrology is... This is a funny side side turn, 180. Learning astrology, I learned very slowly, but with astonishment, is a, literally a course in becoming a genius. Because you have to track so much fucking shit in your brain. You have so many symbols in your mind. From, aside from the planetary symbols, the houses, and the fucking... Numbers. And oh, my God. It's all numerological. Yeah. So, if you think of 1 through 10, 1 is the beginnings. 2 would be the secondary push towards that. 9 would be culmination to, to the... Co- and this is Martin and I waving a white flag on the couch because neither one of us are... <laughs> <laughs> I certainly first learned, after being from Boston, that something like astrology, the premise of which I didn't understand, was obviously a, a, a realm of geniuses, though, because you had to track so many things in your mind... It's a lot of moving bits. And it helped me so much in my writing, trying to learn that stuff, even though I didn't believe it. Well, I mean, talk about your writing, because this yeah. is what I really want to hear about, and, and I apologize for the, the lengthy intro, but your life has been so interesting to me. <laughs> um, what, uh, you know, a songwriting, I mean, you're, 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 what, 400 songs deep into your career at this point, or yeah. a thousand? We um, wrote 350 for TV. Uh, me and a bunch of, me, either me or me and Dan and Swampy who were the greatest songwriters I ever worked with Dan Povenmire and Swampy Swampy Marsh I mean it was just such a we would write so quickly together it was so fun uh, we had we the songs came out so good I mean we lucked out the just famous keep... songwriters came to call up Disney and say who writes these songs and then they would come in can I meet them and then we'd invite them to write songs with us and who are some of these people? I mean, well, the most recent one, I told you about this before, was uh, Mike Stoller of, of Lieber and Stoller. Stoller and Lieber. And so, Jerry, so just a Lieber and Stoller, who I think most people who are giant music fans know. but The it, greatest. Yeah, they wrote, I mean, a gazillion. Everything from Elvis, uh, my favorite song, which is, is That All There Is. Um, really? uh, 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 you know, uh, 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 Under the Boardwalks. Uh, uh, 
Stand as by I, me. As I, I said mean, earlier, the uh, everything all of the Motown, shit everything for Motown that Holland Dozier Holland didn't write. <laughs> yes. um, I mean, there these guys. I mean, the Carol King kind of. Yeah, know, totally. So I was so lucky because I met Mike Stoller um, at an art exhibit that my friend was having, and he came over to me and said, "Dude, do you want to meet? Do you, do you, do you know Mike Stoller?" I said, "Of, of Libra and Stoller." He said, "He said, yeah, he's here." I said, "Is he still alive?" And he said, no, yeah. he's just here. <laughs> and so I said, I killed him. He's my favorite, my idol. And he was the sweetest guy. And I lucked out by asking him the first, the question about songwriting. The first question he would, then we, he said, let's take a walk. I'm going to tell you about this. I asked him how he and Jerry, Jerry Lieber wrote, is that all there is for Peggy Lee? Because it's your favorite song of all time. It's just one of the greatest songs I've ever heard because it blew, it blew my mind much like A Day in the Life. It changed, well, you know what it is? It, I mean, the thing that I think you're... The common denominator is that it subverts... Um, yeah. The common sort of... Totally. ...diction that goes into songwriting. I mean, it's That's like, what I mean. It's the same as A Day in the Life. A Day in the Life was... What was it? It was like... First of all, it sounded like a regular kind of folky, eerie song. And then suddenly... You have this orchestral, surreal Charles Ives thing coming in that makes no sense at all, building to to crazy fucking shit. And then there's a middle part, which is a completely different style of music, when McCartney takes over with that piano riff. And then the and then they do this crazy, dreamy stuff coming up. And then there's the orchestra coming up again to this big build at the end with a giant chord at the end. It was like like nothing has ever been done before. It's we two were songs drive hum- dry humping. <laughs> Really, no, know. it's it's it's. But that's the thing. I mean, when you when something defies uh, convention, I mean, like, totally is that do. all there is? Or we were talking earlier about even burning love by. Oh Elvis. my God! And the it just like yeah. it, it's like a it it flows out of something. It doesn't make sense as a. Yeah. And what what is so amazing is the subversion of yeah. of common you know sort of. That's exactly right, and so that was the thing. And so when I asked him about that's about is that all there is and believe me I was nervous I mean he's 83 I didn't know if he'd be a dummy or what he'd be able to talk and he was so so he's like 10 times smarter than me of course and then he's sharp as a fucking tack and he says oh good question and then he said let's take it. and then we started talking about he told me the whole story of how they wrote is that all there is and the experience with Peggy Lee and how they did it and it was just the most amazing thing and the big takeaway from that two takeaways were he was teasing me because he said, how many songs you written? I said, well, you know, I don't know, 600, but I, I wrote 350 for Disney and, you know, there, so a lot of them haven't been, haven't been sold. He says, how long does it take you to write them? I said, one hour. He said, sold! That's exactly nice. the right answer! Nice. He said, me and Jerry found out early because we had no time and we worked in the, did I tell you this? No. We worked in the, um, the machine. Yeah. Well, like, I mean, what do you with call it? What's that building? Brillstein building. Brill building, yeah. The Brill building. Is that it? Yeah, it's a and, Brill building. And, and he said, we, it was one hour we would take. I said, get this, Mike. When we were working for Disney and we had to write hundreds of songs, they didn't, Disney didn't pay us to write the songs. We only got BMI a year later, a year after it broadcasts. Because hmm. it was under contract, because we were all under contract at Disney. So... If, a, if an outside songwriter who liked our work and came in to write with us, they would get maybe $2,500, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, whatever they would pay them. We would get nothing. 
we would just get BMI, which still was a hefty good amount to get with you. In have so many, right? Yeah, but it go, it, it's a slippery slope. Yeah, slide. no, I know. And, and, and believe me, I'm a TV writer. I <laughs> but I said, get this mic. I'm talking to Mike fucking Stoller. Um, we found very quickly, because we had to write them quickly because they weren't paying us, at like 5 o'clock after we finished our day job or whatever, that when we finished writing the song, we look up and it would be almost always exactly an hour. An hour was gone. It took one hour. It's weird. It's our, an hour is just an arbitrary time frame. Absolutely. So it was so strange. And so it was so strange, too, that when I, he said, how long does it take? I said, one hour. He says, that, that is correct. That, that's a commonality with Really? For, for people who are writers for hire? Well, it was for us and for him. So that was a pretty good litmus well, test for me. As I said before, we were talking about Tom Wolfe earlier. I uh, Oh, yeah, that's right. Know, somebody who, you know, he said he wrote <laughs> Bonfire of the Vanities, uh, you, know, uh, per- you know, periodically for Rolling Stone because he needed a deadline. And I think that's the case. I think <laughs> that's, that's right. I mean, I'm a writer, you're a writer, you are a much better and smarter writer than I am. But no, I don't think so, because I never wrote for network TV at all. So, But you, but you, so these songwriters... I wrote that would Cable. Come, <laughs> me too. These songs, um, but these songs that you would, that you would come up, I mean, obviously these are well-loved and there's a, there's a whole generation that grew up on a lot of your Disney songs, but there are also pop songs that you are collaborator, you know, people that would recognize the, the excellence of your songs and then ask to write with you. And some of those so people thrilling. were... The basic, the bottom line of everything was I was super lucky. It was the right time, right place. That's not true. Well, <laughs> here's why it is. I mean, of course we knew how to write songs, but we were lucky because of the, because of the right time run right place because you can be as good a songwriter as good an artist or good a story writer good a joke writer but if you don't have the right timing forget it so it was pure luck is really what it was because there are so many talented songwriters and singers and write comedy writers out there much better than me but the timing was so fortuitous and ridiculously auspicious so so maybe a couple other things about songwriting. Are we about ra- ready to wrap up? Or? Yeah, no, no. You know, I I could talk all night, but we will. Uh, we have wine to drink and we have dinner to eat, so we will uh, we'll wrap up eventually. But I know I'm really interested because you have. I mean, you have this volume of work that you've uh, created, and it's. Um, some of it is for specific purposes. Some of it is for. Uh, other people, some of it is things that you've written on spec that you think that would you know possibly be of interest to people. Some of them are things where you've been uh, you know contacted because of your talent and people have wanted to work with you. Right. So how you know I mean those things are all you know different, but uh, you're still the same guy and you're the you're the epicenter of that ver you know that. Well, thing. it's a learning with all of those different me- uh, um, job. One of, with all those different, all those different versions of you know, uh, uh, it's all just a learning curve because we don't. It's just like anything else. We have no idea what we're doing. When we go into a songwriting session, we have no idea what we're doing. And so, uh, with Disney, for example, writing for TV, we would write for an for a story, and we each episode of this of the stories of Phineas and Ferb specifically. Mm-hmm. And we lucked out again because that was Disney's number one show for 10 years. I mean, it's funny for, I mean, you know, brother, brother, brother thing. My 
nieces and nephews, my <laughs> brother's children, <laughs> and my other brother's future children, this is iconic stuff. You know, <laughs> so this funny. is amazing. It's so funny because it's just the fucking, fucking goofballs. I know, but it, it getting it, together to do it. But we had so much fun. And it, the reason for the success of the show was Dan and Swampy because they had created a show that was not a Disney show. It was written uh, very complex. It had three different stories within 10 minutes that had to be told that would dovetail much like uh, Moliere or, or Jerry Seinfeld, like, like, like that. And so the three stories would unexpectedly dovetail, and that was the formula. And so we would also put a one-minute or one... 30, one and a half minute song in that structure, that 10 minutes. That's that a pulled big it fucking together. chunk. Yeah. Not necessarily. It could have nothing to do with anything. Oh, really? It could be we just arbitrary. Would write, yeah. We just would sometimes we'd just write anything. I mean, a lot of times it, of course, had to do with it. That was, you know, let's say, 80% of the time. But 20% of the time, let's say, um, we just would write something crazy and just um, then just do it and just have it fit in. For example, uh, Doofenshmirtz and Perry the Platypus exercising had nothing to do with the story, but we would write a, a song that would have them exercising that had just just as a, a little oasis in the storytelling. And that was largely the humor of Rob Hughes, um, who was one of the four songwriters, and John Barry, uh, the fifth songwriter, who was, who was one of the best songwriters I've ever worked with. And his father was Jeff Barry, who wrote Be My Baby. Okay, I thought you were going to tell me his, his father was John Barry, the guy who soundtracked all those, like like Gandhi and, you know, all those movies. I'm not even familiar with him, but Jeff Barry was always one of my idol songwriters, so I got to meet him by pure chance because John Barry, my co-partner writing with Dan and Swampy and Rob, was his son. That's so cool. And he knew Mike Stoller and all that stuff. He was one of those guys. It just was a weird coincidence. It's weird when you come out to L.A., isn't it? That, yeah. that everybody's connected. Like, if they've lived out here long enough, there is a lot of uh, well, interstitial kind of... Here's the thing. Because this happened to be, by pure chance, Disney's number one show, and believe me, that's luck. Because they just fucked up, and they didn't prepare, and they didn't, they didn't have a show in line. And so it's they had to... Skill. They had to take a show that wasn't a Disney show. Phineas and Ferb wasn't a Disney show. It was totally against anything they were doing. After the fact... It's they, beloved. It's absolutely beloved. After the fact, Disney shows became more using that model, kind of. But the executives were very, very good at Disney. So they um, allowed a lot of freedom with creators. So, um, so we lucked out being in the right place in the right time. But the music was... Dan and Swampy and said, no, we're going to do a song and everything, every episode. And they said, okay. How, how many times does that happen? So, um, because, it, because our mandate was to do a different style of songs in every episode that we wrote for all different styles, and we found Danny Jacob, our co-writer and arranger, um, who did all the music and scored the show. So without him, it would be a totally different animal and not as good at all. And Danny Jacob was one of the finest guitar players, too. So is there anything else I want to talk about, about songwriting? Because it's so fascinating. I never get a chance to talk well, about no, it. Well, no, I'm more, you know, I mean, I'm fascinated by this idea of you having, 
really two sides to your life too is uh you know there's this there's this writing for work and then there's you know i mean you did a uh album with your daughter a couple years yeah. ago and i mean you you do still have this uh i mean good lord you're prolific as hell and um Except but I mean, as a as a decline towards the grave, it gets a little slower. Slowing down. Oh, by the way, we all get a little slower <laughs> as a decline towards the grave. But I mean, you and Olivia did a did an album a couple years ago that that's really pretty cool. Yeah, the father daughter. <clears throat> What's the name of it? Do you have it here? It's a father daughter album of wondrous beauty or something. Yeah. What is it? I forget the title of it. Oh my lord! Because <clears throat> I'm fucking old. You're great at plugging this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> It's on iTunes, whatever it is. It's Olivia Olson and Martin Olson. But I mean, it, it's really it's amazing. You did this thing with your daughter, and you guys have have uh, appeared on really, really. Uh, I mean, okay, I'm going to run through a tiny bit of it, but like yeah. you know, Olivia was the little girl in in Love Actually. The two of you were in Adventure Time. Both of you were voice actors on Adventure Time, correct? Well, I'll tell you that story briefly. Martin is the writer of the Adventure Time books, yeah. and Martin is also the, the author of Encyclopedia of Hell, which was another bestseller, which was uh, a huge deal and is going to have a follow-up eventually, which, no Encyclope- pressure. Encyclopedia of Heaven, yeah, I but I've been so bad about doing it. So no pressure. So um, it is a lot I'm of I'm not pressure. your editor, I'm not your publisher. <laughs> um, but no, no, do tell us the story of how you want to work together. My beloved pu- publisher, Adam Parfrey, who basically made my career because I sent him the book and he said, dude, I'm publishing this. I've never published any humor, anything like this at all, but I love this book and I'm going to publish this. That was Adam Parfrey, and he just passed away two weeks ago. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, the sweetest guy, I mean, a cantankerous motherfucker he was unbelievably and brilliant for and he was the sweetest guy to me ever and he made my career but and this was for what publishing house for feral house yeah feral house who did, okay that's my it. favorite publisher since I'm, I, I was a big fan of amok which mm-hmm. i found out later he did yep because it was like how to murder someone i'm thinking what in a <laughs> no i mean it, it, <laughs> just if if you've got no um you know, uh, if you've got no knowledge of this, uh, he he died a few weeks ago, but and dearly, dearly missed because the greatest dude ever. he was a champion of offbeat, strange, really, really subversive humorists. It, it was well, I wouldn't say humorists as much, although he was hysterically funny um, because he was so dry. But it was mainly with books that were. St- Excellent ex- books that no one else would publish because they're unmarketable, because they're unsellable. Because, and let me backtrack a little bit. I used to get work. I sold my first screenplays by writing the unsellable script. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one was based on G.K. Chesterton's book, The Man It Was Thursday, which has no ending. And I figured out an ending for it, but it was like the most expensive movie ever in the world. And it was like a, a period piece. It was every single thing on the checklist that they say what's no the, to. What's the novel that, that they always said could never be? Uh, Is this converted? a famous thing? Yeah, there's a... I, it, 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 it escapes me the second, and I shouldn't have brought it up because I don't have the answer. But I yeah. know what you mean, though. No, but the yeah, then, so the, the end of this novel is Friday. 
Um, <laughs> but so, uh, so you, but you, I remember knowing that you wrote the script for this. I wrote the script for that, and it was unsellable, unproducible. Mm-hmm. And I've since found out that other writers, I mean, had, ri- had written, no, had written unproducible pilots on purpose just to fuck with people and to make it because they... Because get out of contracts. No, to get a job. So they wouldn't write like, oh, let me they write didn't a pilot write for, for t- the two of us or whatever the fucking, I don't so even know write what the, sitcoms are. So the, write the best version of the craziest shit you ever, just to prove yourself as a great writer. Yes. And so, for example, I remember this one guy said, dude, did you really do that? He said, yeah, and I got all the work. He wrote a pilot for Roseanne where Roseanne gets fucking killed. And it was so fucking crazy and so funny. That's the one that they all read to each other and said, you got to read this. And so he ended up getting a job. Who was that? I forget. I forget who it was. This guy, we were talking about the unproducible scripts, Mm -hmm. and I was so thrilled that I... But Feral House was like a real, like... Feral House did that. It was a real sure. champion. Feral House would pick up the dross of stuff the geniuses wrote, like through uh, that were un- unsellable. And so my book certainly was not any. I'm not a genius writer by any means, and this book was so tattered and and and, 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 and mixed up and, and piecemeal. Um, so I hired an editor at his suggestion, and then we went through it and turned it into the book. It, Encyclopedia of Hell, which I was so proud of, and Af- and, and and Warner Brothers bought the film rights. Excuse me. So I made like so much money off of that first book. <laughs> it was ridiculous. Congratulations. Yeah. Thanks. Anybody who can fuck with this system, I'm I'm happy with. But um, so yeah, it was definitely outside the system. My agent, Annette Van Duren used to be in the system. She worked for Swanson and for ICM, I think, but then she started her own agency, and I just, every morning, prayed to thank God that I ended up with Annette Van Duren because she was outside the, she's in the system because she knows everybody, but she said, fuck this, because she got pregnant and they wouldn't pay her maternity, maternity, and she said, the hell with you guys, and she started her own thing. And thank God I worked with her for like 30 years. That's awesome. Yeah, so I lucked out. Good for you. Well, anyway, um, we're, we're tipsy now. <laughs> it's, uh, we're drinking wine we just toasted. Lovely Wyndham, to a pleasure. This is really yeah, fun. Yeah, thanks. I'm glad I ever met you, and, and I'll <laughs> like never well. not know you. So thanks so much. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.